Hey, this is Kelly Whiffen. Thanks for joining us today for the Encounter Church podcast. We all want to live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, we believe the next 30 minutes can be one of the most helpful and hopeful parts of your week. At the end of the podcast, stay tuned for a couple messages. Thanks again for joining us today. Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. Uh, I don't know about you, but that video stresses me out. I'm sitting here and I'm like, I am so stressed right now. But isn't that life? I mean, that is life. And I'm so excited to be kicking off this series. The next two months, I think, is going to be really, really good for us. We're um, getting ready to dive into a series called Spent that then turns into the Beginner's Guide to Future on creating the future that you want to have, not the, the past that you've already had, right? And so these two series, Back to Buck, I think are going to be really powerful for us. I want to begin um, with a story of a Slovakian bridge, because I think this bridge and um, the bridge naming experience essentially uh, kicks off this idea that's at the heart of why we utter this phrase spent. Um, in 2012, there was a bridge naming competition. There was a new Slovakian bridge that was going to open up in this small little village. And so they opened it up to the town people, townspeople to say, hey, give us the name because we want to name it in a way that's going to mark this territory. And uh, this big, beautiful bridge was getting set. And as the, the entries were coming in, it climbed over 13,000 entries. And 12,947 of them all had the same name for the bridge. And only four of them, only 400 of them had alternate names. And so the bridge was all but named. The name that they had chosen was the Chuck Norris Bridge because in the country at the time, the biggest um, kind of phenomenon was Chuck Norris. They loved Chuck Norris, his, his old like Walker, Texas Ranger shows and his old shoot 'em up like manly, masculine kind of bravado um, just grabbed the Slovakian people. They absolutely loved it. And so they wanted to name the bridge after him. And the government officials were in this awkward place of we can't name our village bridge after Chuck Norris. We'll be the laughing stock of the world. And, um, and so they ended up naming it the Freedom Bridge to commemorate a moment in their kind of history with the communist regime before. And the, what the story illustrated was when they were sitting around planning that idea, they're like, how do we create energy around this bridge? Let's let the people name it. They had no clue that when they started that floodgate opening up, that what would come out of that was the Chuck Norris Bridge. And I think that in so many ways, life kind of comes to those similar places where you find yourself in an unintended place that you never set out to arrive in. And I think when we find ourselves saying that phrase, I don't know if you've ever said that phrase. I said that phrase this week. Um, I'm just spent right now. I'm just so spent. And for some of you, you may be saying it right now in your finances. For some of it, you may be saying it emotionally. Some of it, you may be saying mentally in the midst of preparing for finals in school. But we all have this, this moment in our life or places in our lives where, if we're being honest, we're in danger of saying that phrase, I'm just spent right now. And I think that the answer to how we got to that place and how we get out of that place is very much tied to the Chuck Norris Bridge. It was an unintended, conduct, it was an unintended consequence 
We set out on a journey not realizing where it was going to take us. And today, because of baptism, I, I want to kind of give you a little bit of an introduction with, without kind of launching into all the nitty-gritty and the details of how to get out of it. But I want us to kind of come to a place today where we recognize that there is a way forward that doesn't leave you spent. And in kind of a shorter introduction, I want to kind of introduce you to the next five weeks of this series called Spent. To, to get there, I want to go to another story, a story that Jesus told that's perhaps one of his most famous stories. If not the most famous, it's at least the second most famous story that Jesus ever told. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. And it's a story that at the time uh, was kind of a, a little bit scandalous. Because Jesus makes the hero of the story someone that everyone hated. There was a backdrop at the time. There was some political tension. There were some racial tensions behind the story of the Good Samaritan. Um, Jason referenced the app. And so I'm just going to read that story to you real quick so that you kind of refreshed. Or if you're new to the whole Christian experience, you can hear it. And then I'll unpack a little bit. And then we'll jump into what's its implications for this life that we find ourselves experiencing spentness in. Um, it says in verse 29 of Luke 10, kind of set the backdrop, there was this guy who's saying to Jesus, teacher of the law, he's like, Jesus, I've got a question. Um, how do I, uh, okay, so I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor as I love myself. That's the second most important command, Jesus. But who is my neighbor? That's the question that sparks the Good Samaritan. Because the theological hot-button issue with religious people at the time was, who's the neighbor that you're supposed to love? And, and so Jesus, hearing the question, launches into the story of the Good Samaritan. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And that's an intentional use of the word down. Because Jerusalem is about 1,500 plus feet above elevation of Jericho, and it was a quick decline. This wasn't a gradual slope. This was a pretty steep winding path. It was dangerous back then because this path essentially winded you down through valleys, and there was crevices and cracks in the rock where robbers would hide, which is why you see when he was attacked by robbers. This was a common news story of the day. So Jesus is using something very familiar with these people, and he says that they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. Their intention was not for him to live. They had beaten him to a point that they've taken, taken everything, and they've walked off. So their desire is he's going to die, and they've gotten away. And it says a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when they saw the man, he passed by the other side. Now, you have to realize, when people first heard a priest, they would have naturally assumed, oh, we know how this story ends. The priest is going to help the guy. But he doesn't. And then he says, uh, so to a Levite. And they're like, oh, okay, the Levite's going to help. The priest were the elites. They're a little self-consumed. All right, the Levite, they're the, they're the like second-class elite. So they're going to help. And nope, they pass by on the other side too. And then Jesus utters this statement, but a Samaritan. Now, if you've grown up here and you're an avid Boston Red Sox fan, you instinctively know that to be a true Red Sox fan isn't just that you love the Red Sox, it's that you equally hate the Yankees. <laughs> and something inside of you knows that when the word Yankee is said, you are supposed to kind of boo under your breath, or if you're at the game, you or in front of your television, you say whatever you want, you have a free pass. Right? And so this is the reality of the life here. When people hear Samaritan, 
They know they have a free pass to boo, hiss, and say whatever they want. Because it's this kind of level of animosity. And Jesus says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds. He poured on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey. He brought him to an inn and he took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you have. And then Jesus says to the man, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? And this guy at this point is kind of squirming, squirming. He's like, oh, man. And it says, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. This, he couldn't even say Samaritan. He hated him that much. He couldn't even say, well, the Samaritan was the one who did it. He's like, oh, that guy, the, the guy, you know, who, who was nice. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Now, this story has inspired so many people throughout human history. It's literally the name of laws that exist in almost every single state in our union. It's the name of countless hospitals. Jesus used this story as a rallying cry and a picture of what does it look like to be the church and to live people regardless of who those people are, to love people regardless of who those people are. Like, but I don't want to go the path that we've gone before with the Good Samaritan because I think the answer to this idea of spent is actually happening around it. And to tease it out, I want to tell you another Good Samaritan story. So in 1973, a couple of researchers had this idea. Um, sociologists and psychologists like inventing slightly bizarre experiments, if you spend time reading it in that world. And one experiment they had was, what if we recreated the Good Samaritan story, but we did it with seminary students? And so they went to a seminary, a pretty famous seminary, in fact, and they recruited 65 seminary students, and they were told... In the course of the experiment, we're, we're, we're going to be gauging your communication. We, we're going to actually ask you to speak. Here's an outline. We want you to teach on the story of the Good Samaritan. And um, it's going to be in a building across campus. And so after you do the talk, we'll evaluate it and we'll give you your response. And so in the course of the kind of signing up, giving the outline, talking through it a little bit, they were broken into two groups and they didn't know it. The first group um, was told the researcher would look at his watch and say, you know what, you got plenty of time right now, but if you want to go on to the building they'll, and just sit outside, they'll call you when, when it's time. The other group, the researcher was to look at their watch and say, oh my goodness, you're already late. You've got to get across right now. They've been waiting on you for five minutes already. And those two groups were then dispensed and they left. And what was interesting was when it was all said and done, the group did not know that in the middle of the campus, on the way, someone was there, an actor had been hired to feign being in pain, like really obvious, loud pain, and to kind of see how much attraction would people who are talking about the Good Samaritan story actually have in the process. Now, a majority of the people who were on their way, who were not in a hurry, stopped to help the person who was physically crying out in pain. The other group, the ones who were in a hurry, 
Only 10% of those group actually stopped to help the man who was crying out in pain. One literally stepped over the guy on the way to go do a talk on the Good Samaritan. I mean, how funny is that? He's like, get out of my way. I'm going to go talk about helping people. And I think it's the Good Samaritan, the, the Good Seminarian story that gives a little insight for us living today in the barriers that we have in the Good Samaritan story. You see, I think what ultimately that experiment revealed is that at the heart, at the heart of often the lives that we don't want to live, there is a disease that haunts us. It's the disease of hurry. And that hurry robs us of far more than we realize. And hurry has some unintended consequences that we don't realize when we first sign up to embark on that journey frantically. Pacing pushing, and living beyond our limits. You see, I think at the heart of hurry is a lie. A lie that maybe you and I have never even thought about before, that to get the most out of life, we have to add more to life. That to get the most out of life, I need to add more into my life. And I think this bears out in our culture. We are living in a day of overload. You think about it. Um, Marie Kondo on Netflix, Tidying Up. I don't know if you've ever watched that show. I get stressed for those people. But then I go and I open up my desktop and I need Marie Kondo to come to my computer folder system. Right? I mean, we live in a day and an age where we are just as guilty. We laugh at people on the televisions, but we mirror their lives in other places in our lives. We are people, um, I, I like TED Talks. I'm a bit of a nerd, which if you've been coming here a while, you've probably figured that one out. Or if you're here for the first time, just the start of this message, probably already reveals that from Chuck Norris to a psychology experiment in 1973, but I digress. Um, so I like TED Talks. And the thing that blew me away this year, it was like literally an out-of-body experience for me because one of the TED Talks this year was on sleep. Now, a TED Talk is supposed to be like humanity's brightest, newest, revolutionary thoughts. That's what a TED Talk is intended to be. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, are you kidding me? A TED Talk this year is on something that my mom told me to do when I was three years old? Like, that really is humanity's best idea? And I was sitting there, like, imagining if other animals in the animal species, they would be judging us right now as a species because they're like, are you kidding me? These people don't realize that, like, they think sleep is a, a, a profound idea? And it, it is right now because we're overextended. The average American doesn't get enough sleep. And we're literally dying in various areas of our life because we don't get enough sleep. And we don't even realize we're living in an age of overload. Did you know that the, there is more information in the New York Times than... So one edition, the Sunday edition of New York Times. So if you went and picked it up today, you could hold it. You would have more information in your hand than a 17th, 17th century British citizen would get their entire life. So a 17th century British citizen 
their entire life, they would be exposed to the same amount of information that you could go spend 275 or whatever it is today and hold in your hand. I had this experience a few weeks ago. I sit down because I had this like rare moment where I didn't have anything to do. And I sit down, I'm like, I'm going to watch Netflix. And I open up Netflix and I spend 15 minutes trying to find something to watch. I'm like, how is there nothing on this thing to watch? And I'm like just scrolling, mad. It doesn't help that my wife loves, like, how do I put this? Because, you know, Netflix names it. Like, if you like this, you like this. And so Netflix says that, oh, perhaps you would enjoy this strong British, no, British drama with strong female leads. And it's usually like a historical British drama. With str- and I'm like, I don't want to watch any of that stuff. Like, give me something good. And I'm like scrolling through and there's nothing to watch. We have more information. YouTube adds 300 hours of video every single minute of the day. 300 hours. There are more books printed this year than you will be able to read your entire life. This year. Printed. We're exposed, overwhelmed, over-limited, overwhelmed. And I think what happens is living in an age like this, the unintended consequence is it leads to that. You feel spent. Because this is a new, modern problem. Humanity has never been exposed to what we've been exposed to. I mean, like I go all nostalgic, and which I swore I never would become. And I think back to when I was growing up, like there wasn't as many sports programs available as there are today. There wasn't as many after-school programs as there are. There was not nearly the... Like my mom didn't feel the pressure to expose me to so many things to set me up because the world was kind of steeped in competition. Like we had three channels. And that was if you licked your finger and you held the antenna the right way and your brother's (laughs) leg was stuck out, right? I mean, like we just, we didn't have that much going on. But we've kind of woken up in a world that's running at a pace faster than we even realize. It's like when I go to the gym, this is really embarrassing, and I start running. And as I'm running, if I notice the person beside me is running faster, and I'm just like, I'm running 2.5, and they're running 7, but I think I should be able to run faster than them. And so I'm like, I'm just warming up, you know. Beep, 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 beep. And then I'm like holding on to dear life. Why? Because we... One of the things that happens is we watch other people living their lives and we get sucked into the pace that we see them living. But we never ask, hey, do you have any flexibility? Are you spent? Because they would say, I'm spent too. I'm spent trying to keep up with you. And you're like, well, I'm spent trying to keep up with you. Because we get in this war where we just, we take our cues from what's going on around us. And the unintended consequence is we wake up one day and we're just spent. And this is how you know you're in a place where you're spent, is there are a few things that start to happen when you're living your life in this kind of state of being. One is your stress levels go up drastically. I mean, some of you experienced this this morning. You, you experienced your stress level go up because you your time had already been spent. You needed to get to church. Your kid decided at the last minute they wanted to wear something different or they had to go to the bathroom now, or the, the breakfast wasn't right, they needed a little bit more, or your, your husband or whatever wasn't ready yet. I mean, just something little that 
all of a sudden sucks away the margin you have, and now you're in the car, you're screaming at the kids, you're arguing with each other, and you're like, we're going to church, we're supposed to be happy right now. And then you walk in, and you're just like, you finally sit down, and you got your cup of coffee, and this is like the first time in the entire day that you're like, whew. And then you watch the bumper, and you're like, are you kidding me? That was my morning. This is insane. And this is this life that we find ourselves in when our margin goes down and we're living our life in this unintended consequence of the world called split. Our stress is up. Our, our like adrenaline rises to the top. We're fight or flight, and we're ready for it. And then what happens when your stress level goes up and you get into fight or flight is naturally you start to become self-consumed. I'm not saying that's a bad thing or a good thing. That's what happens as a consequence of fight and flight kicking in. You're self-consumed. Stress is a painful emotional and mental experience. So you're both self-consumed, fight and flight, and you feel pain. Which is why, in those moments, extreme emotions are really easy emotions. Right? I mean, the... A small thing you used to celebrate, your kid, I mean, there was a point in your life where you would have paid a million dollars for your child to finish that plate of food, and now you're ready to throw that plate through the window with them attached to it because they're making you late. Because it's easy to react in the extremes. We blow up, or we do the opposite. We implode, and we get discouraged, and we're depressed. When we're in those places, we get extremely reactive. And we find ourselves distracted. You're at home and you're thinking about work. You get to work and you feel guilty about home. And you just live with this dance. Your calendar feels like a prison sentence. You can't enjoy the meeting or the people you're with because you're trying to focus and try to think about the next thing. And so you find that you can't enjoy anything. You don't want to go on vacation because if you go on vacation, you know you're only going to come back and have more work because work didn't stop when you left. And then it ultimately leads to a pandemic in an American society where many American workers don't take their vacation days, they don't take their sick days, and they constantly build up because, man, I'm just, if I go on a vacation, I'll only be more tired. Or we do the opposite. We go on vacations, and in the extreme, we so overload those things, we come back and we're like, man, I need a vacation from my vacation. Right? This is what a life that's spent looks like. But the, I think the, the most tragic part comes in on that third piece is where your relationships begin to suffer. Because when you're living that style, when you're living that way, you, you have no, emotion, no emotional margin, no time margin for intimacy for deep, rich conversations. So I'm a self-confessed, like, efficiency fanatic. Okay, I love anything that makes me just a little bit more efficient. Um, I use Evernote. Everything in my life flows through Evernote, which is a note-taking app. I, right, as of, like, um, a day or two ago, I think I was at 13,539 notes in my Evernote. Right? I mean, I am constantly obsessed with how do I squeeze a little bit more efficiency out of email? How do I like make, and you know, I listen to audiobooks at three and a half their normal speed. It doesn't even sound like a language. It sounds like a cassette tape being fast forwarded. And that's how I listen to audiobooks. 
because uh, I love efficiency. I love being able to get more information. I want to I read more books this year. I want to learn more this year than I've ever learned before. And yet, I have this constant tension in my life that my relationships don't tend to be really good candidates for efficiency tweaks. You can't make a relationship efficient. If you want to have effective relationships, it's the very opposite of efficiency. Fortunately for me, God's gift to me was two ladies, one named Jenny, who is my wife, and one named Ella, and both of them daily remind me that love's, love moves at a pace far slower than I naturally do. That if I want to love them well, I have to downshift into first gear. Because both of them spell love, T-I-M-E. Both of them enjoy the rich, deep conversations. I mean, if you've ever pulled up beside Jenny or I in the car, probably like you, and you look in the back seat, she's talking. She doesn't stop talking. She falls asleep talking. She wakes up talking. She loves to talk. And it's so sweet and tender. And, and, and fortunately, like I said, I, I'm a dunce, so I needed very clear. But when she was little, if I wasn't paying attention, she would grab my face with her little hands, and she would turn her head, and she would, like, she would move my head to look in her eyes and say, Daddy, I'm talking to you. And I'm like, sweetheart, I'm so sorry. I, I will stop doing what I'm doing. What do you want, boo? I mean, it took, like, I, I look at my life, and I live with this constant fear that I could run past them and not even know it. Because in my pursuit of efficient, in my pursuit of pushing more into my life, what I could start to experience is less. Because the lie is, is if I want to get the most out, I just need to get more in. And yet, it's not true. And if I'm not careful, I find myself doing this where I try to borrow from my future that I don't have and give it to people in my present and say, well, it's only a season. It's just a busy season. Well, the busy season's been going on for four years. I know it's a long season. But it's, there's a, the season eventually, you know, then we'll go on that trip or, or then we'll go on that date and that we'll borrow from our future and we bribe the people in our present with this future that we don't even don't have. We, like, we have no, no promise of it. And we'll try to bribe them with it. And that's the danger of buying into the lie that to get the most out of life, you've got to put more into it. But what I love about the Good Samaritan story is it actually shows something. It shows us from a distance, as an example, that there must be a different way. Because if the Good Samaritan story had happened today, what, what Jesus would have told was there were three adults all walking down the street staring at their smartphone, and they didn't even notice that the guy was injured or hurt. Right? I mean, that would have probably been the modern version of that story. That or maybe perhaps someone took a video of that guy and said, saw this poor guy suffering on the side of the street, we should do something about it. Hashtag, let's help a man out. Right? And then they'd kept on going. Hoping it went viral and that guy got some help. But the Good Samaritan shows us that there's another way, there's a better way, there's a different way. And that that different way is to realize that you can't give what you don't have. 
and that in order to get the most out of life, it's not found in the pursuit of more. It's found in the pursuit of intentional less. That it's the intentional less in my life that actually gives me the most in my life. One of the words that I use for that is the word margin. Margin is essentially underspending the energy, the, the time, the resources you have, underspending it intentionally so that there's a gap between what you're living and the limits of your life. And the, the difference between how you're living and the limits of how you can live, that little gap is called margin. And this was something that was deeply, deeply ingrained in God's people. If I had time this morning, I could walk you through Old Testament passage in different ways from their finances to their time, to their resources, to their abilities. God was constantly speaking and forming a people in the Old Testament and then reinforced in the New Testament that margin is to be the mark of a life well lived. Margin is the way that we can step into situations and circumstances and not explode and not blow up and not be overextended. The Good Samaritan, the only reason the Good Samaritan story happened is because he had margin. Think about it. It says that when the Good Samaritan saw him, he took pity on him. The Good Samaritan had emotional margin. I don't know about you, but when I'm exhausted, when I'm emotionally spent, it's really hard for me to have compassion. It's really hard when my daughter is weeping in front of me and I've had a stressful day. It's really hard for me to care. Let's just be real. When you are spent, you don't care as much around about the people around you. You do, but you don't have anything to give them because you can't give out of what you don't have. And the Good Samaritan, he had emotional margin. He had space to give pity to a man. He had an ability to feel something inside that moved him. He had financial margin. He He gives bandage and oil and wine. He gives him his own clothes. He's living not at 105% of his income. He's living less than what he makes in order that he is able to expend that margin on people who need it. He's able to be generous because he had financial margin to do it. You cannot be generous if you do not have margin in your finances. I mean, the most stressful conversations my wife and I have ever had, and I'm going to guess it's probably true of you too, is around money when you don't have enough of it. Isn't that like the most, like if you want to ruin a good date, go to a nice restaurant. And so I printed out our budget. I wanted to talk about it. (laughs) Guaranteed to kill whatever mood you thought. You go ahead and stop Barry White. You go ahead and turn that off because it's going on CNBC and WWF at the same time. It'll kill it. Like, and yet when you have financial margin, you can have a flat tire and you don't freak out. Or I read a story earlier this year where um, this family had been saving up money and they had a uh, a $1,060 debt and... Um, they had finally saved it up. They'd cashed it out, and they put it in an envelope to go deliver the debt to be paid off. And it was sitting on the side of the table, and the mom walked through the living room, and it was gone. And, and so they're, like, frantically looking around the house, searching the car. 
And over the course of the weekend, they keep find, they keep looking, they can't find it. And, and then the mom um, notices that the, the shredder is a little fuller than normal. So she picks up the shredder and she opens it up and there is her $1,060, her little toddler who had been helping her shred all those mail pieces that come in, saw an envelope, assumed mommy must want this one shredded. I'm going to be a good helper. Shred, 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 shred. And shredded $1,060. And so, you know, they're frantically trying to figure out how do we deal with this. They call the um, treasury department. They're like, good news. We take those bills and we'll refund you the money. Yeah, it's a really simple process. only takes one or two years for us to, to, to do it. Now, if you have no financial margin, you may be tempted to shred your toddler, right? And I'm reading that story, and I'm like, so much of how I would have responded to that moment would have really been reflective of how much margin I had. Because when you have margin, when you are saving for those moments, when you know your car is going to break down, or you know someone's going to get hurt, when you have that margin financially, when you have that margin emotionally, when you have that margin in your schedule, you can start to live your life differently. Because you refuse to participate in the lie that the most is found in life by adding more to it. And this series really is about us waking up to the fact that maybe God has more for us and it's found in less of us and what we do. And that I know for some of you, I may freak you out even with this idea of margin. And that you're too busy, you're too overwhelmed, you're too financially overextended. Which is why I'm not asking you to do anything today, but, but to answer two simple questions. And if you're willing to answer those two simple questions, if you're willing to lean into that, then in a couple of weeks we're going to circle back up in the course of this series and I'm going to invite you into a six-week journey. A six-week journey for you to start finding margin. Because imagine you arriving early somewhere, early. Or imagine you having enough time that even when you hit traffic, it's not the end. Imagine that you actually have time in between your appointments to think about the previous one and to be prepared for the next one. Imagine you working hard, still doing a great job at work, but still being able to be present when you walk through the door because you saved some emotional, mental energy for them when you got home. Imagine you having enough finances that you actually have a savings account and you don't freak out when the unexpected happens. Imagine your life when your relationships are starting to flourish in the beauty of what margin was meant to create of intimacy and rich and deep conversations. See, here's what I know about all of us. We may be freaked out in the journey to margin, but we all, all hunger for the other side of it. Because the best in life is not found by trying to get the most, by putting more into it. It's actually us being brave enough to start pursuing the less. And in doing so, our lives begin to change. So here's your two questions, and then we're done. Okay? So you may want to put these in the notes. You may want to write them down. Um, If you don't want to do either, that's okay. Make me feel better and pretend. All right? (laughs) 
So here's the question. First question. Where are you currently living beyond your limits? You don't have to ask your better half beside you because you may not want to hear that answer yet. You may not want to ask your kids. But if you want to be brave, maybe you should. But where are you currently living beyond your limits? And then two, where are you currently adding more into your life and experiencing less? Okay? These two questions are meant to uncover some of those places in our life where margin would make the most difference. So where have you bought the lie? Where are you adding more, believing you're going to get... Where, where are you adding more but actually experiencing less? And where are you currently living beyond your limits? And don't let anyone see those answers, but come back next week. And then the next week. And then over these next two months, if you're willing to listen online, join with us, I think what you will find at the end of this two-month journey is a life beginning to be filled with better decisions and fewer regrets. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. Did you know we've created a free app just for you? Whether you are exploring or want to grow in your faith, the app is a great place to start. If you found today's teaching helpful, we hope you'll subscribe or share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you on site or online at Encounter Church soon.